You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Uh, last week, uh, we talked about um, uh, kind of giving, uh, giving to the poor uh, and just sacrificing of our finances. Um, and uh, if you weren't here for that, uh, Ovi uh, preached on that, so you can listen to that on the podcast. But this week, uh, we are going, uh, we're talking about prayer. And, uh, and this is also uh, the Lord's Prayer. Um, now, yeah, to be fair, I'm not entirely sure. I think it's just the Lord's Prayer because the Lord said it, right? But really, it's the disciples' prayer, right? Jesus said, hey, disciples, if you're my disciple, then you will pray like this. So it's actually more of like a disciples' prayer um, than necessarily the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but we'll, we'll get into to that whole mess uh, when we get there. So what I'd like to do is just read uh, the whole passage. And so we're in Matthew 6, 5 through 15, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll pray and, uh, and get, into, uh, get into the text. So Matthew 6, 5 through 15. And when you pray, uh, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they will be seen by people. For truly, I say to you that they have the reward in full. But as for you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use thoughtless repetition as Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. So do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive other people of their offenses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive other people, then your father will not forgive your offenses. Let's pray. Dear God, I just... Uh, I just thank you for, for giving us your word and, um, and for challenging us and, and challenging uh, common um, misconceptions. And, um, and I ask that you just, uh, you, you speak to your church today and, um, and just be with me as I, as I try to navigate some, uh, uh, some tricky texts. Um, and I ask that you just, uh, you just remove me from the equation and, um, and help me uh, speak accurately and, uh, and eloquently um, and just prevent me from any missteps um, so, that, uh, so that your church uh, and your people and your children um, aren't deceived in any way um, or, um, or led off a way that isn't, uh, isn't uh, your proper way. And we love you and thank you again for everything that you've given to us. We love you. Amen. So uh, this is the text uh, that we are going to be working with. And like I said, uh, there is uh, kind of the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer uh, kind of contained in here. Um, now, there are uh, three major points uh, that I want us to, uh, to be aware of. Um, and, uh, and like I said, this, the context is Jesus is talking to his disciples. Uh, and so this is Jesus's desire uh, for his disciples. So uh, Jesus's desire uh, for his disciples' prayer is to be communion with their heavenly father, 
non-coercive, and uh, God and others focused. So those are, those are gonna be the three major points. Um, and that's again, uh, Jesus's desire for his disciples' prayer is to be uh, communion with their heavenly father, non-coercive, and uh, God and others focused. So we'll, uh, we'll break that down. Um, and this, um, so just, I'm gonna ask, uh, a favor of you guys, uh, just to bear with me as we kind of navigate through uh, some of this stuff. Um, some of this stuff is uh, a little bit more difficult to uh, to try to to go through. Um, and Ovi always uses this analogy of uh, kind of walking a path, and then on each side there's a ditch, right? Uh, to be careful of. Uh, there's a couple ditches that we need to be super careful of. And so as we go through this, just bear with me. Uh, if you feel like we're going off in a ditch, it's probably because we are, and I will correct it at uh, a little bit later. Okay. So just bear with me as we go through this. Um, and uh, and like I said, uh, I'll just hope that uh, that God uh, kind of speaks. Uh, through this and, uh, and make sure that this is accurate um, and God-honoring. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll read the first uh, portion of this text um, and, uh, and just try to make, make it clear what, uh, what Jesus is getting at. And so uh, verse five and six, he says, uh, and when you pray, you are uh, not to be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues uh, and on the street corners so that they will be seen by people. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. But as for you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In this section, uh, this is where we actually find this first point. And that first point, again, is Jesus desires for his disciples' prayer to be communion with their heavenly father. Uh, that is what prayer is, uh, is intended to be, or at least what Christ wants his disciples' prayer to be, is actually communing with their heavenly father. Now, last week we talked about these hypocrites, right? Uh, There's actually the same Greek word that's used of uh, kind of actors, so uh, people that would actually kind of take the stage or they would act in the theater, in the Greek theater, uh, is that they would be known as the hypocrites, right? And this, uh, this wasn't necessarily a derogatory term like it is now, uh, but it is just simply and quite literally someone that is pretending, right? Someone that's acting in a certain way, but doesn't necessarily believe it in themselves, right? Their intention is to put on a show or to put on an act, and just like the hypocrites, what do all hypocrites or actors, what do all actors desire? What's the point of their trade? The point of their trade is to perform, to be seen, to be watched. And that's what Jesus is getting at. And that's why he calls them hypocrites. And, and so, yes, maybe there is some derogatory connotations tied into this, uh, but also just more logistics uh, in that the only thing that actors do, their whole existence is to be seen to be watched. And so in the same way, uh, when the hypocrites, uh, when they stand in the synagogues or they stand on the street corners and they pray, their whole, their whole intention behind this, the whole meaning behind their existence in that moment is just to be seen. And so, uh, and this is, this is often something that the religious leaders and the Pharisees would do. We have, uh, we have instances in, uh, throughout the gospels uh, of this actually happening. Um, and, uh, and this is why Jesus says, truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. 
What were they trying to accomplish? Not talk to God, right? It wasn't actually what they were looking for in the first place. All they were actually looking for was just to be seen. And so what's the reward? Being seen. That's it. It's, it's as much of a reward as any actor would. And so that's, that's important is that the hypocrites desire to be seen and then their reward is to be seen. And you can actually see that in their action is because they're doing it in the most visible way, right? And so Jesus is saying, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't do this. Instead, he says, but as for you, as for my disciples, my desire for my disciples is that when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And so we do have to ask yourself, well, what reward is that? What are we being rewarded with? If we pray in secret, what is this reward? Is it just whatever you prayed for, whatever you ask God for? Not necessarily. Again, he's juxtaposing uh, the hypocrites to now the disciples. The hypocrites pray like this. They pray openly and visibly because they want to be seen and that's their reward is being seen. And so, what, and so the disciples, they pray in a secret to their father who is in secret. So they pray in an unseen way to an unseen God. What is their reward? It would be unseen, right? It would almost be like God himself is the reward. It's almost as if God, Jesus desires for his disciples' prayer to be communion with God. If we pray in secret to a secret God, if we pray in an unseen way to an unseen God, then the unseen God, this communion is our reward. And this is, the reward, and this is what Christ wants for us. And we'll, we'll see this even more clearly when we get into the Lord's prayer. But this is his desire and his hope for his disciples is that they, they go off into secret so that they actually have secret prayer with their secret unseen father. And you see this reflected in Jesus's life. So often he goes off into isolation to pray to his father. He has these, these powerful and meaningful moments uh, only in isolation. And this is, this is something that I, I, I feel like a lot of us, we kind of move on a little past, right? Um, okay, cool. I can just pray in secret or just don't make it a big deal to, uh, to pray in public uh, or be showy in our prayers. I mean, how often are, are all of us really doing this, right? But again, you look at the intention. Okay, sure, maybe your intention isn't to be seen, but is your intention just to love time with your father? Is that why we're praying or are we praying? Do we only come to God when we're just looking for something? Is that really communion with our heavenly father? And that, that's what Christ wants for us. He wants his disciples to, to want that communion with their heavenly father, to desire that, to chase that more than anything else. And sure, he uses the hypocrites as examples of what not to do, but what we should do is chase that communion with, with our father. And so this is something that we do need to, uh, to wrestle with and we do need to be honest about is what is it that we're actually accomplishing? What is our motivation in our prayer? Is it trying to get something? Is it, uh, uh, is it trying to accomplish something more than just developing a relationship with our heavenly father? And if it's something more than that, perhaps our motivations are just as wrong as the hypocrites. 
The next section of this sermon or this uh, Christ's sermon on prayer, uh, I'll just uh, I'll read this. It's verse seven and eight. And it says, and when you are praying, do not use thoughtless repetition as Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard because of their many words. So do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask. Now there's a, there's a lot to untangle here. Um, and it might not seem uh, as, as messy as it, as it actually may be. Uh, but uh, this, uh, this thoughtless repetition as a Gentiles, uh, this is a pretty common pagan practice, right? Um, is the, the Gentiles, we actually find a, a lot of this even evidenced in, uh, in Ephesus. Uh, we actually have like archeological uh, evidence of the way that they would do magical incantations that they, w- they would just repeat the same words over and over and over until the spirits or the gods actually acted out uh, what the person was actually incanting or praying, right? Um, some of these words, it was uh, actually just saying the words over and over. Some of them weren't words at all. They were just utterances, right? And there's actually some evidence that these people were praying what they thought was, uh, they were praying heavenly language, right? And they would just say these heavenly words or heavenly language over and over and over, uh, trying to convince their gods to do their bidding. And again, this wasn't just like first century pagan practices. This was actually, uh, we even see this with Elijah, right? Uh, And the prophets of Baal. If you don't know that story, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, they were trying to get their gods to do something. Uh, and, uh, and the prophets of Baal, what were they doing? They were reciting their incantations over and over and over. And then Elijah's making fun of them, right? Like, oh, maybe he's asleep. Uh, pray harder, right? Pray louder, maybe you wake him up. And so they, they pray with more intensity. And he's like, maybe he's on the toilet, right? Try harder. <laughs> and so Elijah, he's just egging them on. But this is this, it's, it's a pretty common practice, right? Uh, within, within pagan uh, theology is that you just recite the same things over and over and over. And often it was just endless, right? And you were actually proven to be uh, kind of better at this if you prayed long enough to get God to do what you wanted, right? That's when you knew that like, man, you've made it, right? You prayed for such a long time that God actually gave you what you were looking for. And so Christ is saying, don't do that. And this might feel, I don't know, weird or foreign um, or maybe ancient. We don't do this anymore. We don't have this philosophy or this perspective, Uh, but we actually do. Uh, There's actually something called the law of attraction or manifesting. Don't know if anyone is familiar with this, but this is something that is very common, uh, especially nowadays. And the law of attraction is this idea that if we, if we set our mind on the life that we want, then the universe, we will attract it. We will attract those things. We will attract the life that we want and God will give us that life, right? Or the universe. Or in the words of Joel Osteen, it's your best life now, right? And so this, is, this actually is very common, right? Where we actually do, we, we think, we set our mind on the life that we want. We think about these things, right? And we, we chase the life that we want and we constantly set our mind on it. There's also these things called vision boards, right? What are these vision boards? We actually put a, a real picture of the life that we want so that we see that thing over and over and over and we set our mind on, the, our, our mind on that thing. So sure, maybe we're not repeating uh, thoughtless words over and over, but our mind is endlessly set on the life that we want. How is that any different 
from what the pagans were doing. And yet this creeps into the church too, doesn't it? How often do we come to God and we just endlessly ask for the things that we want and then we just expect God to give it to us? Now this is getting a little bit close to home, right? Because isn't that how prayer works? Isn't that we ask God and we're, we're dedicated and we just ask God over and over and over and we're persistent in our prayer, right? And then we, the expectation is that God is going to give us that prayer. But what we've accidentally done is we've actually just espoused manifestation. It's just, we just unplugged the universe from the equation and we plugged in God, right? We set our mind on the life that we want, right? And we don't expect it's the universe to get us there. It's actually God that gets us there. So how is that different? How is prayer different from manifesting or the law of attraction? Sure, we don't have a vision board, but maybe we have a prayer journal, right? So what is this? If Christ said, don't pray like the Gentiles do, where they're trying to coerce God with their repetitious words. So now what? Aren't we supposed to pray diligently and repeatedly? Aren't we supposed to come to God with all of our wants and our desires? But then here Jesus says, don't use thoughtless repetitions as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. And this is an idea. This is a biblical concept. I don't want you guys thinking that this isn't a biblical concept, but we do have to wrestle with what is the difference between what Jesus is talking about here and what Jesus is talking about in Luke 18. So let's look at Luke 18, one through eight, and talk about what this is doing. And by the way, this, this parable is its own sermon, so we don't have time to get into everything. I just need to touch on it. Um, so Luke 18, and Jesus, so the same Jesus that said, don't pray like the Gentiles. Jesus in Luke 18 says, now he was telling them a parable to show that all, at all times, they ought to pray and not become discouraged. Saying in a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect any person. Now there is a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect any person yet, because this widow is bothering me, I will give her justice. Otherwise by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, listen to what the unrighteous judge said. Now will God not bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night? And will he delay long for them? I tell you that he will bring justice for them quickly. However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? So here we find this example, right? Jesus is saying, we come, we come, we come to God uh, and even said at the beginning of the verse, right? He's, he told this parable um, so that his disciples know or they learn to pray at all times and not be discouraged. So pray constantly and don't get discouraged. Uh, and then we find the widow, she, uh, she came to him, uh, the, the unrighteous judge said, she's coming to me continually. It's all the time. And, uh, and then even the Lord said um, that uh, when, when his elect cry out for justice day and night, all the time, 
So we do find this idea, right? Pray repetitiously. Come to God and, and just be persistent in our prayer. Talk to God all the time. And often even about the same thing, like justice. We find other verses. Uh, there's um, throughout the entire New Testament, this is a pretty common, uh, common idea. Uh, Romans 12, uh, 12. Uh, Paul says, rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. So again, like when, when we find ourselves in tribulation, when we find ourselves in hard times, uh, what do we do? Pray constantly, just like the disciples. He told the disciples, uh, day and night, pray for justice. He, told, he wants his disciples to learn how to pray at all times and not be discouraged. Uh, Ephesians 6.18 uh, he had just, Paul just got done talking about the, uh, the armor of God. And then he says, praying at all times in the spirit and with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. There's this idea again of praying all the time and in perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we have pray without ceasing, there's a bunch of other ones, but I filled up the PowerPoint slide, so I stopped, right? It's like, there's, there's, just, there's, there's so much. It's such a constant idea of just praying consistently, praying always, praying diligently, praying persistently. So what is Jesus? So obviously, right, praying consistently or persistently is not the problem. So what is Jesus getting at here? So let's go back to Matthew 6 and read it one more time. And it says, and when you are praying, do not use thoughtless repetitions as the Gentiles do. So in the way that the Gentiles are doing it, right? Or the motivations of the Gentiles, which again fits the context because he just talked about the motivations of the hypocrites. And now he's juxtaposing the, the motivation of the hypocrites with the motivations of the disciples. And now he's talking about, he's juxtaposing the motivations of the Gentiles and the motivations of the, of the disciples. So what is the motivation of the Gentiles? We know the repetition part is not the problem. We just read a bunch of verses where it says, no, 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 be repetitious, right? Be diligent in your prayer, be persistent, be constant. So that's not the problem. The problem is the motivation, What's the motivation of the Gentiles? For they seek that they will be heard because of their many words. So they're desiring that their gods hear them and do what they ask. That's the motivation. Now, again, we find ourselves in this tough spot where it's Jesus is actually calling us to not have the motivations of the Gentiles. And this is kind of what brings us to our point is that Jesus desires for his disciples' prayer to be non-coercive. Now, again, what do we mean by this? Do we, are, are, we, are we talking to God and we're just like, I don't want you to do this or we can't ask God for anything? No, that's just not present anywhere. And I just read a bunch of verses that says, pray, 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 right? Uh, ask in supplica supplication for all the saints, right? Uh, this, uh, this widow, she was praying for justice. Um, and uh, yeah, Romans, it says, rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. And so we, and we do find ourselves where it's, it's, so what are we praying then, right? If we can't pray like the hypocrites, we're supposed to pray in secret. We're supposed to pray in communion and our prayer is supposed to be communion with God. 
And don't pray like the Gentiles where you're trying to coerce God into doing something. Then what, what are we doing? Are we just hanging out with God? Is that all prayer is? And what do we do with this when we, the Bible is very clear elsewhere that we should come to God with all of our desires, all of our wants, and yet we're not trying to coerce him into doing what we want? What is that? And we find in the, in the last half in verse eight, Jesus even says, so do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And again, knowing what you need, another way to translate that is he knows what you need before you're asking of him. It's a weird way to translate it. So that's why they don't translate it that way, right? But it's actually before you're asking, before the action even started, he already knew what your needs were. Before he even got there, he already knew. And that's, that's, that's what Jesus is, is juxtaposing is that you don't have to worry about God hearing you. You don't have to worry about getting God to do what you need because he already knows what you need. The, the Gentiles, they say uh, thoughtless words repetitiously over and over and over, and you don't even need to speak a word. And he already knows. So this is, this is that really tight, narrow path where we find two ditches on each side. What are we doing then? What is prayer? Because what we're finding ourselves on is that, okay, like I, I should pray, I suppose, right? Because that's, the Bible says so. And, but yet on one side, we have the Christian equivalent of manifesting, right? Where we're coercing God and we're getting God to do whatever we want, right? We don't want to do that because that's what the Gentiles do. But then on the other side, Jesus said, we don't actually need to say anything at all because God knows what, we're, what we need. So do we have to pray at all? And so you find this, this issue of, well, it, there's, there's these two very deep ditches and they're both very dangerous in our Christian life. And this is what gets so difficult to navigate is what is our prayer? Okay, thank you, Jesus, for telling us, don't be like the hypocrites, don't be like the Gentiles, but what? It's a great question because that's the next section. So in verse nine, he says, pray then in this way. Awesome. We're getting there, right? This is the good stuff. So we know what not to do, right? We're not doing the Christian version of manifesting. We're not doing the Christian version of law of attraction, telling God this is, the, this is my best life now. Uh, Joe Osteen, I read all his books and I know what to do and I know how to get rich. Uh, and you know, so those seeds of faith and all that stuff. So not gonna do that, right? But Jesus did say, then pray like this. So I do know that we do have to pray, okay? So, okay, so I have to pray. Can't fall into this ditch where it's just, Jesus knows what I need before I even say it. So I do have to say something. I do have to pray. And again, we know that God, uh, like a communion with our heavenly father is kind of the intention, but how do we actually commune with our heavenly father? What is it that we're actually accomplishing in our prayer? And so we'll go through the Lord's prayer. And again, the expectation is like, this is, this is it. We're gonna, we're gonna get this, this idea of uh, this is how we pray. This is how we have powerful prayer. This is what prayer is. And so we go through this prayer and it says, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Okay, so hallowed be your name. Hallowed is uh, it's just, a, it's, it's just a, yeah, it's just a verbal form or an imperatival form. It's always an imperative uh, that, uh, that is basically the prayer is that God, please make your name holy. His name is holy. 
It was holy before you asked. So you asking God to hallow his name, that's all taken care of, right? That was taken care of before you prayed. It was taken care of before you started, right? Did you change anything? No. Hallowed be your name. Verse 10, your kingdom come. Was it not coming before? Again, did you change anything? And we find all through the prophets, the prophets, God is constantly talking through the prophets that the day of the Lord will come. There will come a day where the valley will be raised up and the mountains will be lowered. All men will stand on equal footing before the Lord, right? Eden will be restored. All men, his children will be restored. God will commune with God or with, uh, with men. The spirit will dwell in us. This was always going to happen. But Jesus says, pray in this way, pray that your kingdom come. And then the next one is pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And again, was his will going to be done prior to you asking? Yup, God's still sovereign, whether you ask for it or not. So God's will was always going to be done. So now we're still finding ourselves in the spot of like, okay, then what, what are we doing? What is this? right? We're praying for things that God is going to do regardless of our prayer. And so then we, we hope that the next part is better, right? So verse 11, it says, give us our daily bread. Okay. Give us enough bread to make it through today. Not too much. Can't have too much. Can't have bread for tomorrow, right? It's got to be daily bread. Okay. So daily bread, make sure we survive the day. Okay. And then the next one is verse 12 and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. What kind of prayer is that? (laughs) Only forgive us based on our merits. That's an awful idea, isn't it? Forgive us only as much as we have forgiven other people. Don't forgive us too much right? Only forgive us based on what we have done to other people. We all want and need the opposite of this, don't we? We need more forgiveness than we're willing to give. We need more forgiveness than we know what to do with because we don't even know how much we're sinning. So this is the next prayer is that forgive our debts as much as we have forgiven our debtors. And then the last one is don't lead us into temptation. Don't intentionally cause us to sin. Again, we know that God doesn't do this, right? God doesn't intentionally push us down a hill and then say you're guilty of now sinning, right? And it says, deliver us from evil. This is actually this idea of don't lead us into testing or, or temptation. Don't, in, don't, uh, in, over the top or excessively test our faith. And then when we, are, when we are being tested, deliver us from evil, right? Don't unnecessarily test us for too long, but eventually deliver us. Don't leave us in testing for the rest of our lives, right? And again, what a meager prayer, isn't this? Like, shouldn't we be praying like, no God, like never test me, right? I don't wanna ever fall into bad stuff, right? And if anything bad happens, fix it immediately, right? But instead what we find is like, 
uh, just not too much testing, right? And then when we are tested, like, just don't make it last unnecessarily. What, like, what, what is this prayer? What, so Christ said, don't, don't be like the Gentiles. Don't try to coerce God. He wants our prayer to, to be non-coercive where we're, where we're trying to trick God or manipulate God or coerce God into doing what we want, right? And he said, instead, what I want you to do is pray like this. And then this is the, the it just seems like the most vanilla or like plain white toast prayer you could, you could pray, isn't it? <laughs> God, do what you were gonna do anyways. And then uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of us, uh, just give us bare minimum. Amen. And, and th- this, this just raises so many questions, right? Like what, what, why are we praying in this way? So what we need to understand or kind of what's going on in the back, background of this prayer is it actually mirrors the 10 commandments uh, or the Decalogue. If you know anything about the Ten Commandments, uh, half of the Ten Commandments are largely you are largely taught to orient man's heart to loving God, and the other half is oriented toward causing man to love their neighbor. This is why this comes up over and over throughout the Gospels: is this idea of what's the greatest commandment? Well, it's love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But right, it's a big but but the second is like the first, which is love your neighbor uh, as yourself. These two commandments, all the law and the prophets can be summed up in these two commandments. And what do we find in the disciples' prayer? The first three petitions is, hallowed be your name, glorify your name, God. Do your will on earth um, and uh, your kingdom come. These three petitions are orienting our heart toward the things that God wants, the things that God has always been looking for. It's almost as if the first three petitions of the disciples' prayer is about loving your God. So the first three petitions is, you could sum it up, the first three petitions is love the Lord your God. How do you love him? You chase and you desire and you set your mind and your affections on the things that God wants. What does God want? He wants his will done on earth. What does God want? He wants his name glorified. What does God want? He wants his kingdom to come. These are the things that that God desires. This is what he wants. Did he need you to pray about it? No. This is how we commune with our God. We commune with our God by setting our hearts and our affections and our minds on the things that God desires. And what we're not doing is we're not coercing him into doing something or changing the plan or making our life better or giving us more money. What we're concerned with is whatever God wants. And this, our, the prayer reflects this. And this is why Jesus said, pray like this. Set your mind on, the, on loving your God. If you love somebody, and I'm sure we've all experienced this, when we love somebody, we want the things that make them happy, right? We want the things that they want. And in the same way, when we love our God, we're going to want the things that he wants. We're gonna want his kingdom to become to come. We're gonna want his will done on earth. We want his name glorified. And then the second part, the last three, 
is that this focuses our hearts and our minds on loving our neighbor as ourself. And if you noticed the last three petitions, there's no I, there's only us and we. It's always in the plural. Give us our daily bread. Not me, us, all the disciples, right? We're all in this together. We're loving our neighbor as ourself. Whatever I ask for my neighbor, I'm also asking for me. Now that ties back into what, what we talked about a couple of weeks ago was pray for your enemies, right? You think about that for a moment. What you pray for other people, you should be praying for yourself too. What are you praying about for your enemies, right? Are you praying for their judgment? Maybe you should pray for your judgment too, right? So it's loving your neighbor as yourself. You, I, I need enough bread to get through today. And I pray that everyone else around me also gets enough bread for today. We all make it. We all have enough sustenance through the, uh, to get through the day. And this actually is a Hebrew concept. We actually find uh, parts of this, like in Proverbs 30, uh, we see a similar prayer uh, where the writer of Proverbs, he actually says, uh, give, give, give me enough um, so that I don't have to steal and profane the name of the Lord. But don't give me too much that I would, call, that I would forget the name of the Lord. Right? Only provide for me exactly what I need. No more, no less. Just enough for me to recognize my need for God, but not for me to look for another source of income or food or sustenance. Give me just enough. And this is actually what's being communicated here is give us, the disciples, just enough to want the things of God. And then the next part is forgive us our debts as we have, been for, or as we have forgiven our debtors. Again, there's this idea giving us just enough, right? Just enough to motivate us to, hey, we should probably be forgiving everyone, right? Right? If we, if we don't, if we lose sight of this, then we're going to lose sight of the fact that, that we need forgiveness ourselves. And so if we put ourselves on this line, again, if we pray for, if we pray for judgment for our enemies and we, therefore we should pray for judgment ourselves, consider the ramifications of if we have to find or if we find ourselves in unforgiveness and this was actually what we were praying, we would be forgiving differently, wouldn't we? There'd be a lot more urgency in actually forgiving other people more quickly. If we, if we consistently actually asked God, please only forgive us as much as we have forgiven, we'd be far more ready and willing to forgive everybody. And if we were actually living up to these kingdom ethics, we wouldn't have to worry about our own forgiveness, would we? Because it would just all be taken care of. We would actually be forgiving everyone and our own forgiveness would just be presupposed. And the last one is do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And again, there's this underlying understanding that I need to be tested, right? So when I'm tempted, when I'm tested, right? Don't let it be unnecessary. But as I'm in temptation, cause me to ask myself, what am I learning? What am I being refined for? 
And then also deliver us from evil, which is again, don't, don't unnecessarily test us or cause us to go through trial and tribulation. Again, what we're doing here is we're, as we're praying for this, we're also praying, it's a corporate prayer. We're praying for others as well. We're praying for our neighbor as well. This is how we love our neighbor as ourselves is that we are chasing the things that we need while also asking for that same exact thing for our neighbor. And again, what did we find out about our neighbor that Jesus just told us about? Our neighbor is expanded to our enemy. We pray for our enemies, our enemies. We love our enemies. And so too, should we ask God that he gives them their daily bread? So Jesus goes on, uh, I'll just touch on this real quick. And he says, um, for if you forgive other people uh, of your offenses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you uh, do not forgive other people, then your father uh, will not forgive your offenses. Now, this is a high calling. Um, this isn't its own point. I just want to address it real quick. What this is getting at or what Jesus is talking about is that this is the kingdom ethic. And up until this point, he's given us so many impossible tasks uh, you almost read this and you're just like, put it on my tab, right? This is another one I can't do. And in a certain sense, yep, you're just not going to, right? But this is what the Holy Spirit does in us is that it refines us and it shapes us into the person that actually can execute this command. And how this ties into the prayer component is how does the Holy Spirit shape us into the image of Christ? How does it actually make us into a new creature that is able to do this? It's in our communion with our heavenly father. It's in our prayer. It's in our loving God and loving other people. It's in our prayer that we actually are shaped into something or somebody, something that looks like a child of God something that looks like Jesus Christ. And that's how this ties into our prayer. And this is, where, this is where prayer really kind of gets legs and it kind of starts running. But there's some big questions that come out of this where again, I, I don't want to ignore uh, the, the two ditches of this where we're not trying to coerce God into doing stuff, right? But there's, there's two really big questions that come out of this passage. So the first big question is, does my prayer actually change anything? Or is God sovereign over everything? Am I actually doing anything when I pray? God tells us, come, come to me in everything, right? Pray about everything, pray constantly. And just, yeah, like the widow, don't, don't let up. Now, God is not gonna be motivated by the things that the judge was motivated, right? The judge he gave justice because he was being worn down. God doesn't get worn down, right? Again, we don't have time to preach that whole sermon, but what is God motivated by? He's motivated by justice, right? And again, he was motivated by justice long before you, right? So does my prayer change anything or is God sovereign over everything? That is a big can of worms. Um, and, uh, I don't have time to dig into all the nuance of it. However, um, I do wanna pitch this idea. Uh, this idea um, is, uh, well, it was actually, I heard this from C.S. Lewis, um, and this is this idea that God, when he, when he chose to create this world, 
He chose to create a world in which you prayed a specific prayer. And then when you prayed that specific prayer, God could answer that prayer, right? But this world could never have been any other way. So imagine that before he created anything, before he created the world, before he, he even set the foundations of the earth, he already knew what your prayer was and he already considered it and addressed it before anything was even made. So does your prayer change anything? Could you have prayed or not prayed at all is really the question. God created this world considering your prayer, knowing that you were going to pray. I remember teaching this to my high schoolers and when one kid asked me, he's just like, so what happens if I choose not to pray? And I said, then you were never going to pray in the first place. And he never had to consider that prayer. It's almost as if you should just pray all the time. And God knew that you were going to pray all the time. And he's always been considering your prayer before you were even made. It's this constant prayer. There's nothing to lose. Prayers have always been considered for all, of, for all time. And if you don't pray a prayer, don't worry about that either. God's still sovereign because he knew you weren't going to pray that prayer. And it, was never, it never had to be considered. So does your prayer change anything? Depends on what you mean by anything, right? It also depends on what you mean by change. But suffice to say that God is sovereign. He does listen to your prayer. He does answer your prayer, which is the next point. We'll talk about that in a moment. Although it's often not in the way that we like, but he does answer our prayers. He does consider our prayers and he knows what our prayers are. And he's built a world around the prayers that you were going to pray that you didn't know that you were going to pray. So is God sovereign? Yes. Does my prayer change anything? Yes and no, right? The next question that always comes up is what do we do with unanswered prayer? Now, when I say unanswered prayer, I think we all kind of understand the meaning behind that. An unanswered prayer is not necessarily an answer, uh, a, a prayer that God didn't hear or something. Uh, it's, uh, it's quite simply a prayer that God didn't grant to us, a petition that God uh, said no to, right? Now saying no to a question is still an answer, right? That's why answered prayer is in quotations. But what we mean when we say unanswered prayer is uh, when God says no to something. What do we do with that? Okay, so we're supposed to come to God, right? He is sovereign, so he's already made up his mind on what he's gonna do with that prayer, right? He already knew that we were gonna pray that prayer. He's already considered that prayer. We're supposed to come to him with everything. But we also know from the, Sermon on, uh, from, yeah, the Sermon on the Mount that we're not coercing God. We're not making God change the plan for us. So what do we do with unanswered prayer or a solid no? And I think a lot of times we can look at that and just be like, okay, well, God's just not, uh, he's not granting that prayer. And that can be easier to swallow uh, sometimes, uh, but not quite on other times. Like, for example, what do we do when we ask God, please heal my child from their illness? And then our child dies. What do we do when we beg God, please save my marriage? And then it just falls apart anyways. What do we do when we ask God to heal, heal my disease or, 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 or save my, my brother or my father? And he doesn't. 
What do we do when we, when we ask God, please, uh, please give us a baby, right? We, we, we don't want to deal with these infertility issues anymore. And then the baby just never comes. There's some, there's some really big prayers. And sometimes God says no, and we just don't understand what is happening. Why? This is such a good thing that God would, would save this person's soul or draw his soul to Christ. Uh, it's, it's such a good thing that, that we could raise a kid for, for the glory of God. It's, it's, it's such a good thing that we could, we could heal this person and, and make God's name known and glorified. It's such a good thing to have a strong, healthy marriage that just fell apart anyways. What do we do with this? And again, if we're not coercing God to actually do anything, then why pray for those things at all? It'd almost go down easier if we just didn't pray for it and it just fell apart and we didn't have to, to question God, right? Now, I'm speaking from experience because that's exactly what happened to me. Um, and just asking for big prayer and then I got a no. And at, on the other side, it just, it really does feel like what it just would be so much easier if I just never asked for it in the first place, if I never had to be let down, I feel like my view of God would be rosier, shinier, right? So we have to, we have to ask ourselves, what, what is this? What do we do with this unanswered prayer? Especially when we're praying for good things. We're praying for God honoring things things that we feel like is God's kingdom coming, right? God's kingdom on earth. This is his will. I know it's his will. It's gotta be his will. What do we do when he says even no to that? So I wanna go to James 1, 2 through 8. Um, James says, consider all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that person ought not to expect he receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What James is talking about is praying in faith and without any doubting. And yeah, he is talking about wisdom. That's the context. However, James expands this outside of wisdom to that person ought not to expect anything. So he does expand this outside of wisdom. It's anything. If you have any doubting, if you ask in doubting, you shouldn't expect anything from God. And I think a lot of times we look at this as some kind of formula where it's, oh, I just need to have more faith, right? Or maybe I was doubting too much. And again, that, that, that hits so differently when we look at really good prayers like save my kid. And then the kid dies and it's, what do you, did I not have enough faith? And you start wearing it like it's your fault. Is that really what James is talking about here? 
And the irony is we read this passage like this, where it's, if I just had enough faith, or if I didn't doubt, I must have doubted something. If I just didn't doubt, then God would have saved my kid. He would have saved my marriage. He would have healed my disease. Is that what he's talking about? Or is this interpretation of that passage actually making us unstable? Praying in faith and without any doubting, it should look like a more stable believer, a single-minded man, not double-minded. Someone that actually isn't tossed by the the wind and the waves. What is this faith that James is talking about? This faith that we pray in without any doubting, this is faith in God. When we pray like this, when we pray, love the Lord your God, and we pray, love our neighbor as yourself, right? And what if we pray for good gifts and we ask God, we petition him, please save my kid, please do something. And he doesn't, we need to ask ourselves, is God still good? How we come down on that answer is going to determine whether we're going to be shaken or not, whether we're going to be stable or not. Is our belief in God contingent upon his answering our prayer? If it is, we're coercing God. And that's a tough pill to swallow because so often we have to go through just hell. And God knows what you need. And this is what the first part of James is talking about is consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, there's another ditch here where this doesn't mean that your marriage fell apart so that God could produce endurance in you. Your kid didn't die because God needed you to have more faith. Or you didn't get this disease so that God could produce uh, his perfect result in you. What is important to know, and again, it's not your fault, and that's kind of good news, right? Don't think so highly of yourself. But the good news here is that that doesn't mean that God will just take it away. A broken world produces broken situations in our lives. And yes, God could take it away, but he could also use it to do something amazing in your life. And this is what we do with unanswered prayer. This is how we love God as we're going through these trials, as we rejoice, we consider it joy. Why? God's not doing this to you, right? God didn't give you this disease. It's just a natural result of our broken world, but he's going to use it. And that's actually how we know that he's an omnibenevolent God. He is all good. If he is all good and he is all powerful, then he should be able to take even sinful situations and turn it into something that glorifies his name. That doesn't mean that he orchestrated that situation or that he imposed it on you, but it does mean that he's going to redeem it and make it into something that makes you perfect and it makes you lacking in nothing. So when we pray in faith, when we pray without any doubting, we have faith in Christ. That's who we have faith in. 
he is still good, even though our life didn't pan out the way we wanted. He is still good. He is still sovereign. He is still our joy and our life, even though we don't have our best life now, like Joe Osteen thinks you should. The way that we should pray, and this is what Christ is getting at, is pray in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so as we pray in this way, and as we consider what Christ desires for his disciples, what Christ wants his prayer, the prayer of his disciples to be, what we should be focusing on is communing with our heavenly father and not being so concerned with coercing him, making him do something, changing his mind, but instead we should be focusing on loving God, loving the things that he wants, loving the things that he's accomplishing, even when it, re- even when it means going through a trial. And then we also, in our prayer, we focus on others. And at no point in this passage they are, is the individual considered because we always consider God and we consider others. And up until this point, the Sermon on the Mount has only ever communicated that. Love God and love others. And again, this is a tall task, but this is the role of Christ in our lives. He died so that we have the opportunity to actually do this. He died so that he gives us his spirit and that spirit cries out, Abba, Father, so that we can actually say our Father who is in heaven. None of this is possible without the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. So if we struggle in this way, if we struggle with our prayer, if we struggle focusing on God and others, if we struggle with communing with our heavenly father, simply need to ask. Just like James said, and if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives all generously and without reproach. But we ask in faith that God is always good whether we would like our circumstances to be better or not. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.